Welcome to the Team Radical Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to everything hunting and the great outdoors. If you guys love every aspect of hunting and the camaraderie that goes along with it, I promise you will love this podcast. Please make sure to leave us some positive reviews and those five stars. We appreciate it. Now, let's get to the show. What's up, everyone? I am Kyle Harmon. I am the host of the Team Radical Podcast, and man, it sounds weird saying that. If you guys didn't know, we have a web show on YouTube. We are on now Amazon Prime as well as Facebook. You can check us out on those as well as Instagram. So definitely make sure you guys give us a follow there. But long story short, you know, we've really been long overdue to start one of these podcasts, and I'm really looking forward to it. We've got some great podcasts coming up down the pipe for this year. And, uh, you know, it's something that we, we can offer more semi-live action and, you know, give you guys a better look into what we do all year round, getting ready for different seasons and our adventures and how life may or may not get in the way of things. And, uh, yeah, so just really looking forward to this podcast and getting to, you know, share everybody's experience throughout the team. And, you know, that's one thing I really wanted to highlight is be able to introduce everybody that is on the team if you didn't know who they were and, uh, you know, give a semi-live update during the seasons. We're going to go through turkey season and we're across all over the country hunting different states. So I know that's going to be awesome. Going to try to do four to five guys a week on a podcast and kind of get an update and things of that nature. But also we want to do a lot of tips and tricks and, you know, like I said earlier, how we're going to go through the entire year with you. And right now we are in beginning of February and that means crunch time in preparation for the following deer season, all of our habitat management and all of our scouting, shed hunting and moving stands, hanging new stands, you name it. Uh, I, I feel like seriously that February, March and April are probably some of the most critical months Uh, leading up to the following deer season at least it is for me so on this podcast today we're going to have jacob prude on here we're going to be talking about prescribed burning and we're going to be talking about doing burning on crp grasses as well as timber burns which timber burns really interest me i've never done an actual timber burn Uh, i don't know if it's because it scared me or if i was afraid of the the effects that it would have on the timber and, uh, you know, that might just be false thought. And Jacob's really going to walk us through that. He's definitely experienced in that and does it actually part of his living. So I definitely felt like he is the one to come on here and really highlight those um, different types of burns. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I know he's just uh, an absolute full of knowledge when it comes to that stuff. So anyways, with no further ado, we're going to give Jacob Pruitt a phone call here. And uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy this podcast. This is the first one, so bear with us. They will only get better, I promise you that. So let's go ahead and call Jacob now. All right, here on the phone, I've got Jacob Pruitt. How you doing tonight, Jacob? Doing all right, Kyle. Good, good. Hey, you've been a Team Radical member for I don't even know how long now. Do you even know? Eight eight uh, years? Something? Yeah, eight or nine years. Eight yeah. or nine years. Have you enjoyed it? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Believe it. Awesome. Well, hey, today on today's podcast, you know, we're in the habitat management time of the year, really, especially for me. And uh, I know you do a lot of this for a living, so I'm going to let you just take it from here. Tell us, Jacob, what you do actually for your living. So uh, for my living, I work for a, a local forest preserve, um, but I'm a assistant site superintendent slash natural resources manager. 
for them. We are where our home base sets. We've got about 1,700 acres, just a small little preserve, and then we've got a few other ones around the county. Uh, do quite a bit of natural resource management uh, in my job. It's well, it's probably a 50-50 split nowadays with all the other stuff that comes between me and the land, but. Uh, yeah, that's what I do. So, uh, so Jacob, do you what what degree did you go to school for this? So I I went to Southern Illinois University and I got a bachelor's in forestry, specifically natural resources management. Uh, and went uh, from school. I, I I worked kind of multiple jobs out of school before I actually found one that was in my field. So that was kind of handy. I upped my mechanical knowledge, which is all very important when you're out working with equipment on the land, you know? So, yeah. So when you say you're using equipment, what exactly are you doing with that equipment? I mean, you say you're doing, um, so, uh, primarily we, we do it from a lot of different angles. Uh, we take, uh, row crops and we turn them into grasslands or, uh, we'll do tree plantings, things like that. Sometimes we're converting nasty old fields into row crops in, for preparation for planting at some point. Uh, we also manage quite a bit of timber. Uh, and timber, there's a breakdown. Uh, you know, you've got everything from oak savanna to oak woodland to forest. We manage most of the open, more open uh, types. So savanna and woodland, uh, which are very fire conducive uh, environments. Well, speaking of fire, that's really what I want to talk about today, and I, I know you guys do a lot of it, but uh, prescribed burning for uh, grasslands as well as, you know, the timber burns, I see you doing quite a few of those, and that really intrigues me because I've really always wanted to do it, but I never have had the, the guts or the know-how, I guess. So, I guess, can you take us step-by-step, step? let's start at the beginning, um, you know, I know on CRP contracts, especially for me, um, that is a mid-management option. And it's uh, mm-hmm. something that has been absolutely game changer for our land and especially holding pheasant, quail, and all the critters they and the deer as well. They they just love the stuff. And I noticed when we started doing the burning, it, it made a significant difference. So why don't you talk us through, first of all, on the preparation that goes into, let's start with uh, burning grasslands. What what uh, what do we need to do to before we ever even think about burning uh, grasslands? Okay, so... Uh... Before you ever think about lighting a match, you need to have a solid plan in place. Uh, so if you have a specific field, uh, most of the time, and Kyle, you can correct me on this, but I think with the CRP contract, usually you do a third or a half of the acreage. So there's your first problem is you're getting paid for half the treatment. You got to figure out how to only burn half, which there are plenty of options. So you got to create burn breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, burn breaks are, are pretty simple. Hey, uh, hey, Jacob, I want to stop you there and back you up for just a second ahead. because I know a lot of people are going to be wondering this. So you say get a solid plan in place. Okay, so yeah. I'm Joe Blow, and I have never burnt anything, and I'm wanting to burn on, on my piece of land. Who am I going to to make a burn plan? So you need somebody who's been trained to write burn plans per the specs. Uh, basically, what what a what a burn plan does is releases all of your liability legally, or a lot of it, as long as you uh, follow an approved plan. 
your liability as far as getting sued is a lot less. Uh, and so the burn plan is going to have a whole host of things in it uh, that it's comprised of, uh, including emergency contact numbers, landowner numbers. These are people you need to be notifying. How are you going to manage the smoke, uh, weather conditions, wind conditions? Uh, so it's a very specific prescription. Uh, more so than a plan as to you have to make sure you meet uh, all the specs in the plan before you engage. Yeah, and what endangered species may or may not be on the land too is part of yeah, that. Yeah, that's one of, of them, yes. Um, so I guess who? How, how would they find somebody? Say, you know, they're searching online. How, how would you find that? Would you call your local USDA office or what would you do? Yeah, so you can call uh, your local USDA office. Uh, a lot of times, some great resources are uh, look and see if you have a local prescribed burn association. Uh, that's usually, that's basically uh, a group of landowners that help each other out. They should be able to get you pointed in the right direction. Plus you might uh, be able to get into something great there. Uh, and also like pheasants forever, quail forever biologists, I know as well, write burn plans. So uh, there's, there's options out there for that. Perfect. Okay, so we were talking about burn breaks, and you're, I stopped you there. So go back to the burn yeah. breaks. We're, we're uh, starting to make our burn breaks. How do we make our burn breaks? What are we looking for? So, I mean, with a burn break, all you're looking to do is reduce the fuels in one way or another. And typically— Describe fuels because they're probably not going to understand what so fuels, fuels is. So fuels are—let's let, let's take a step back here. The, there's With fire, there's the, the fire triangle. It's what you need— for a fire to burn, which is oxygen, uh, heat, and fuel. Uh, that's what you need for fire ignition. Mm -hmm. So you you can manage, uh, you can't manage heat as well as you can manage uh, oxygen and fuel, and fuel you can manage beforehand. So with fuel, that's anything that'll combust that uh, is within the fuel matrix. So that's on the ground. Uh, it always starts on the ground at your feet. It's not stuff up off the ground necessarily uh, unless the stuff underneath it can heat it. Uh, so there's uh, a multitude of different fuels. So grass is a flashy fuel. Uh, they're the bigger diameter fuels like uh, branches and sticks. Those are going to be less flashy. They're not going to light as easy. Uh, okay. So, so what we're doing with a what we're doing with a burn break is say you take a batwing mower that's 15 feet wide and mow strips through CRP, let's say, um, it's just weeds and grass. Well, you're part of the way there. Right. And before we go any further on that, I want to be clear when you say you're breaking out the batwing. Um, I feel like a lot of people make a huge mistake here. I know me and you've talked about it, a bunch of people have, but a batwing right. mower could be the death of a lot of critters if you don't do it at the right time. So with CRP contracts, there is a time frame that you are allowed to mow and the time frame you are not allowed to mow. What are those time frames? Do you know? Uh, it's, it's basically you shouldn't be mowing uh, from about May through the end of August, I believe is what they recommend. And it, that could vary by a few weeks, but, uh, and what's so the reason? What what's the reason for that? Uh, that that's for so 
anybody who has ran a, a bush hog long enough and done it in the springtime has probably hit a fawn and that is never a good experience and then you're also the ones you don't see are the little brooding chicks that are up underneath that crp they can't fly and you you mow them over it's done it's a done deal so uh yeah it's all about the the chicks and the fawns let's keep them alive that's right so we're we're mowing our burn brakes though with our with our batwing mower or whatever you might have and and what what size of burn brakes are we wanting to make and um, go, i guess go from there uh <laughs> the size of the burn brake uh should correlate with the fuels so uh and this is where your burn plan you know your professionals are going to tell you hey at this humidity maybe your flame heights are 10 feet you're going to need at least a 20 foot wide burn brake so it should be twice the flame height uh you're better off going with 30 feet Just go as wide as wide as you're comfortable with, you should be very comfortable with the burn brake. Right. And the, as far as the, um, burn brakes go and you were talking about, it does depend on the type of grasses too. Is that right? Because some are going to have, can be more fuel than others, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So like switchgrass is a classic volatile grass. It's going to produce real hot monster flames. And yeah. yeah, you want that's again, that's where you adjust your burn brake a little wider. So on top of the, the mowing, uh, disking is a very fine option for burn brakes. You're turning all the fuel under. Just remember that soil doesn't burn. So if you have bare soil, you're in good shape as far as fire creeping, but it can jump. So, I mean, that's, that's where your width comes into play and your prescription as well. Right, right. And what we do is we actually have a hay rake. So after we mow, we actually take a hay rake and then rake in all that dead grass or all that grass we just mowed to the inside to what will be burning. And that, uh, yep. so, I mean, because typically we're doing these, these burn breaks, like you said, in the fall. And, um, you know, usually before, before the end of October anyways, and, uh, get that all done. And then you come back, you know, here we are in February, March, and we're going to start doing our burn there could be some dead grass laying on top and things of that nature. It's always good to go back and double check, make sure, because it doesn't take much. And I'm sure you're aware of some, you know, just a little bit of fuel sitting on top of that burn break and uh, get the right wind gust and it can jump right over. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how easy some of that stuff can burn. You know, when you actually have a good burn day, it's going to try to creep across your fire break a lot of times if you don't have it nice and clean. Right, right. Okay, so we've pretty much covered the burn breaks of things, but uh, what about uh, how many people do you? Is there a number of people you need to have so, per per acreage, or, or what is that? The number of people will also be dictated by your burn plan, uh, so it's got to be a safe number that uh, everybody agrees is uh, sufficient for you know the fuel load the flame intensity, all that is matched to how many people you need and what kind of experience levels you need. Sure. Uh, so, so say you're doing, uh, just a 20 acre CRP field. Uh, you might be able to get away. If you have good breaks, you might be able to get away with only having three people, uh, you know, and that just all depends. I'm talking up here in ag country where everything in sight is plowed up. So, <laughs> yeah, and you're in the wide um, but, open too, so you guys are getting major wind gusts too. 
but most of the time, the more people, the better. Right on, right on. So, okay, we've we've discussed, you know, the burn breaks and how many people it takes, and we've got the plan in place, got everything ready to go. Um, now, the next two things is what type of weather are we looking for to perform our burn? Well, I mean, what obviously you want the right wind direction, which will be on your burn plan, telling you what is the best uh, best wind direction. But what is ideal and what is not ideal burn conditions? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to say it again, but you know what I'm going to say. So I'm going to tell you around here in a grassland type habitat, uh, we see good results with uh, wind speeds, you know, five to 10 mile an hour and our relative humidity somewhere around 40 to 50%. It's a, it's a nice controllable fire that's predictable. Um, I'm going to throw in right now because I said five to 10 mile an hour winds. I don't want anything below five mile an hour. Anything below five mile an hour is a light and variable wind. And there's, you lose your consistency for wind direction. And that's, that's how mistakes happen on the fire line when you can't predict the wind. Right so on. you're using the wind to your advantage all, at all times. Right, right. So when you, you're, you're 5 to 10 mile an hour, 40, 50% humidity, what would be a bad scenario? I know you said anything below 5, but I feel like there's definitely yeah. some other variables that are bad too. I mean, uh, yeah, too much you, you don't want to go over that, especially without experience and breaks. Uh, with flashy fuels, you don't really want to go much over 10 mile an hour at all. Now, when we talk about timber burns, you're talking about a totally different fuel load. Right. And the days where it's above 10 mile an hour, I plan on being in the, in the timber. Uh, that's when, because if you stand in the timber with uh, Kestrel, which is a wind, it reads the wind and humidity. It's a tool we carry on it on us all at all times. Uh, it's a drastic difference in the wind velocities and things like that in the timber. What did you so, say that was called? A what? It's a, it's called a Kestrel. It's like a weather monitor. Um, you can pick them up for I don't know 120 bucks, uh, forestry suppliers, or whatever. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very, and so as a burn manager, I'm using that thing all the time because I'm also taking notes on our fire, how well it's doing. So I can bring all that information back and adjust the plan, how I need it based on the burn outcomes. So it's great information to have. Right on. So we're going to stick to the grass for now before we get into timber, but that definitely makes sense. Um, so when we're getting ready to perform our burn, um, you know, we're doing a backburn to start. So can you tell us what a backburn is, why it's necessary, how big it needs to be, um, and, and just kind of go from there? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're going to start with a backburn, uh, a backing fire. So if you think about it as a backing fire, the fire, you're lighting it, and it's slowly backing into the wind. Uh so what this what you're doing number one when you first you you verify that everybody's there everything's going according to plan so you're going to go ahead and do a test fire and that's generally going to be in a in a rectangular shape field it's going to be one of the corners so you're on the downwind farthest downwind corner you can be on okay uh 
But real I, I quick, I want to back up, Jacob, because I, I mean, this is important. What tools were using to actually perform these burns? You know, the safety equipment. Okay. Um, and exactly what tools were using to perform these burns? Because it's not. Yeah. I know you said at the beginning, light, it's not light a match. And definitely it's not just light a match. You have to go through a lot of matches if you were doing that. But what tools are you using for doing these burns? So, uh, generally, that's another thing that will be in your plan when it specifies the number of people, it's going to specify what kind of tools they have. So certain people might be assigned rakes and flappers. Flappers are basically a piece of rubber on a stick that, you know, you're smothering the fire with it. Um, and those are basic fire line tools. There's Pulaski's, there's, uh, all, there's all kinds of fire tools that you might be assigned. Most of them are rake-like or hoe-like. Uh, and then, you might also have somebody in a UTV with like a 50 gallon tank of water. Uh, we usually throw some dish soap into that. Uh, it just helps the keep the water from beating on the fuel and it's a little more efficient use of water. Um, so those are the main tools that we use uh, on the fire line. And then of course your ignition guy is going to have a drip torch. Uh, that's, the tool of choice and a good rule of thumb to go by is put the slowest guy on the drip torch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the rule. That's the rule I go by. That's not a bad rule. I, I guess uh, the tools that I use, I'll just give you a breakdown of what we do. Uh, we use a, a leaf blower, which you need to be careful with because that is definitely a double headed sword. It can put out fires, but it can also magnify fires. So if you don't know what you're doing, that could be a problem there. Um, but also, like you said, with the, the tank on a side-by-side, I definitely use that as well. Water it down before you burn. And then um, we also use the drip torches. And then I think that might be it. Oh, and the other thing that we do, because I've had it happen only one time ever, is we always have a tractor with a disc on standby for emergency. And what I mean by that is if the fire does get away and say it goes on to the neighbor, um, you can box that fire in with a disc, and meaning it's not going to light up the whole entire next field or whatever. And I have had to do that one time, and it's pretty darn scary, and it's not what you ever want to happen, but things can happen, and that's uh, that was an emergency tool that we definitely use. Yeah, yeah, and just like you're saying, I mean, this is – this, if you have a proper plan, this is part of your contingency plan. Uh, this is the plan C after everything goes wrong. But a lot of good plans will have, you know, it's almost like uh, zooming in on Google Earth and here's your unit. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and let's see, okay, there's a creek here and a road here. Uh, so that you should definitely be ha- have all that in mind before you light your match. Absolutely. For sure, yeah. Um, and, Especially and those creeks back, you just said, because, man, if they get down in the creek banks, you're not going to be able to do that. I mean, you're going to have to get down on your hands and feet, and you're going to have to fight it. Right, um, That's right. That's a whole nother monster. And going back on the sprayers, um, they are the handiest tools. And, you know, you don't need specialized fire equipment in a lot of scenarios, especially what we're doing, which is mainly mopping up. You know, you're getting the little – fingers of fire after the whole thing's done um a 15 gallon spot sprayer can be i mean you can go a long ways with 
you know, just your standard herbicide sprayer off your four wheeler. Um, so water is, is huge. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very handy. And, and we usually conserve it and don't use 90% of it, but it's nice to have. For sure. And I hate to keep backing up, but this is very critical. One of the most critical parts is before you even burn, the day you're going to burn, the first thing you're supposed to do is do what? Call who? Oh, right. So that that's, again, this will be on your plan, but you're going to call local area dispatch, um, and you're, you're going to call the fire department. You're going to let everybody know exactly what you're doing. Uh, that way nobody gets surprised. A lot of times the fire department highly appreciates it, and they might even come spectate. So uh, definitely make your phone calls. And that's what I was saying, too, about earlier. I mean, we call our neighbors. Uh, you need, you know, if you have a nursing home anywhere close, you need to, you have to be doubly sure that you're not putting smoke on them. You know, things like that. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and that's that's huge because otherwise somebody sees smoke rolling and you know they don't they don't see the actual point of fire and they they just freak out and they call you know the the sheriff's department or the fire department and next thing you know they're out there. And they just made that trip for nothing when, you know, you should have a controlled fire. So definitely, definitely important to make sure you do that. And uh, um, I guess with that, I mean, we, we've covered that with, with you know, getting up to the burn and actually starting the burn with the back burn. Um, one question I have is, can you actually have too hot of a fire or a fire that burns too fast? Does that I, – I, let's, let's get to the bigger point of this. What exactly is the fire doing? Why is it beneficial? So, Why are we doing this? Okay. Um, so with, with fire, fire is breaking down organic material, and it's combusting it, putting off heat, as we talked about earlier. Well, what is not organic material is lots of minerals uh, that the plants were using, uh, it's basically almost a fertilizer. There's some salts in there in the white ash, but the black char that is the result of the fire, and you'll see it, especially like say you have a tall native grass field, you burn it off and you have these four or five inch stubs that are black. Um, those are loaded with charcoal and charcoal is, is basically the in-between point when something breaks down, it's, it's turning it into carbon. And carbon, charcoal especially, is like, it's like little apartment complexes for uh, water, for microorganisms, um, and for fungi. So you, ha you have everything a soil environment needs to thrive that you're putting directly into the dirt. So you're, you're literally boosting the soil's capability so it can perform at its prime. Now, I'm sure that's, that's fantastic. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are going to wonder, though, well, if I just burnt that all off, how is that going to grow back? They, you know, they're freaking out, my God, too hot. But what, what do those grasses have? I guess, how, how is that coming back? So you got to also understand that soil is one of the best insulating materials on Earth. So after a fire that could be 1,000, 1,200 degrees sweeps through, you can literally go through the ash and touch and the soil's still going to be cool. So 
they're thriving on the fact that they've got root systems. They're per, most of the time perennial uh, that are established and deep. Uh, so they're going to they're they're taking advantage of everything that's coming down with these giant root systems. Yeah, and I think that's a big misconception. A lot of people think that oh, I just burnt all that off. There's no way that's going to grow tall by next season, which is 100% not true. I mean, it it will definitely come back. And uh, so, getting back to burning it, is is there such thing as burning a a field too fast? Say you had a so yeah. So say you had a uh, instead of an ideal five to ten mile an hour wind, you had a twenty to thirty mile an hour wind, and you got crazy and you burnt your field. Does that have an effect? Because you know it's not burning it as hot because it's passing over it so much quicker. Yeah. So absolutely. So let's just let's start with a back burn versus a head fire. Uh, generally, on a back burn, you ha- you're going to have. I'm going to throw out a scenario here. Uh, let's say on a back burn, you have eight to 12 inch flames. And on your test fire that you just lit in the corner, it's the fire's now burning away from you into the wind. Those flames are staying low, but that fire is, there's a lot more residence time. So it's sitting there in one spot and consuming all the fuel it can before it creeps a little farther. So it's doing a better job of consuming the whole amount of fuel on the soil surface. Also, uh, with the residence time, if you have stems of woody trees and things like that, the fire is really going to sit there and cook the stems and make sure that tree is top killed. Um, And I'm not saying a flashy fire can't do that, a head fire. Uh, Head fires run a lot faster and... uh, they consume more usually if you have the wind behind the fire. So you're injecting oxygen into the fire. It's consuming things that are up off the ground because that oxygen doesn't penetrate that ground layer. So a lot of times you will end up with a bunch of material even after a burn on it with a head fire that isn't consumed there, which can be a bad thing or a good thing depending on your objectives. Okay, and I don't mean to jump off too much topic here with this, but I've had this issue, and I know I've I've chatted with you a lot about it, but you're talking about those woody species being in your grasses, and you're obviously, for most people, are trying to get those out. Um, you're tra- right. You're trying to encourage your grasses. Um, black locust, that is the meanest there is. <laughs> I mean, that, that stuff just doesn't die and just keeps coming back stronger. So real quick, I just want to talk about, that you know it might look like it's charcoaled it might look like it might be dead but most likely it is definitely not dead so we want those to come out and there is a big difference in taking out um you know say autumn olive versus black locust (laughs) and uh i want to just talk about the the two ways to take those out so black locust how do we how do we eradicate black locust in our in our grass programs so black locust is a super tough one because it is adapted to do what it does. Uh, if you think about it, so black locust grows primarily vegetatively. So it shoots out roots underground and then another stem will pop up. And sometimes it could be 30 feet away. Sometimes it could be four. Um, but you, what you got to understand is these these little clonal stems, once they come up, they're still being fed by the rest of the clone. 
and then they shoot up another one. Well, it suppresses the fuels around the original clone. So you can't even attack the heart of the beast with the fire because it peters out beforehand. So it comes down to mechanical or chemical treatment with black locusts usually. Okay. And mechanical treatment can really be a bad idea. Yes. You can provoke it. <laughs> A.K.A. what he's referring to is mowing it. Yeah. So you can make it come it back on. twice as strong. And exactly. I'm speaking from experience, people. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us. Yeah, go go with that. Yes, definitely. So uh, I, I've used several. Triclopyr works real well on black locusts. Um, Cut stump. Uh, also, in your grasses, you can. But when are when are you when are you spraying it, Jake? Because that's that's critical when you spray. It. So, uh, if you're going, if you cut stump, or if you are spraying with basil oil, you can spray it generally year round, except for in the spring when the sap's going up. If I'm foliar spraying it, I'm doing it in June or July when it's got the green leaves on. Yes. And in it's case you don't know what the leaves. black locust is, it's the ones that have the giant thorns on it that are tire pokers and everything else. So, nope. So black locusts have shorter – you're thinking of the cousin honey locust. Honey locust. I'm and, sorry. Yeah, so the black yeah. the black locust does not have the thorns on it. Well, it has it has some shorter ones. So honey locust is a is – a, is different because it's a it's still a legume tree and it's a pioneer it's the same similar situation honey locust is just a massive seed producer okay so, so are, are you using the same method to take eradicate both of them actually so what i found that is easiest with honey locust is a track loader and a tree puller you can they, they the roots are almost like a carrot so you can with the soil conditions right, you can go out there and just pluck them out. Um, you know, mowing them is not a good idea again because those, you, <laughs> that is no joke. They come back mad. So yeah, uh, for sure. But but yeah. So other and, than that, and, yeah. And, and also, to, I guess bring mention to this is honey locust. As far as providing for wildlife, isn't necessarily a bad tree to have. The the black locust is the one. That uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the black locust one is basically no value. Am I am I right on that? Yeah, it's got so basically it's got a little bit of value to bees and stuff in the spring, but it's one of those that can, it 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 has a tendency to get out of control. So if I was to choose between the two, I'd choose honey locust. Right on. So now that we discussed the the locust group there, let's talk about the other species of trees in there and and what method. Uh, well, a lot of times the fires will kill those, um, you know, your different woodies, but sometimes they don't. Um, what is the method on getting them out? Is it just drive up and pull them out? So a uh, fantastic method that I've came up on uh, kind of experimenting with it in the past couple of years is uh, so I'm going through and I'm, I'm ripping fire through there. And yeah, it'll top kill a lot of those trees, but just like you said, they're grubs. They're, they're, it's just like the prairie plants. The roots are still alive. You killed the top of the tree. So so you can manage with fire, and you can keep those sprouts low, and if you burn them enough, I mean, they're never going to turn into a tree. But uh, a, great, like, a great thing to do, especially if you're doing a spring burn, is 
follow it up, go out there a few days later, everything is exposed and get some garlon and some basil oil and basil treat. All I do is spray the root crown. So you can just walk around and then it's nice to carry marking paint or something. So you can just paint the tree that you just treated. So, you, so that way, when you come back around in 30 minutes, you'll know that you got it. But uh, that's, that's the, by far the best way. You can also cut and treat and the efficacy of that I question because it's already been burned. Okay. And some of those, you don't feel like when you pull them out that you're getting the entire root system or enough out, you think they're going to keep, keep going. Yeah, and and that can happen, yeah, sometimes. But just like the honey locust, the autumn you know, you're taking most of what they have. So you're definitely moving in the right direction. Right on, right on. Well, we're sitting here talking about these woody species, so I think this is a good time to transition. And if you guys have any questions on the grass burning whatsoever, definitely reach out. Um, I'll send you Jacob's way because this guy knows his stuff. But let's transition into doing timber burns. You know, that's something that's really interesting interest me um i've not done one i've really been intrigued by it especially seeing your snapchats and you do them all the time uh you and jake vansel both and uh, i guess first of all I, i've got a couple questions before we ever get into the preparation and everything of it but with with a timber burn what is the benefactor of doing it first of all so with with uh our our woody burns so the main benefit well there okay let me start back over there are multiple benefits for burning inside your woodlands and stuff like that but what you really need to do is figure out what your goals are um what i tend to do is i'm looking for site markers you know out there like a big wolfy oak you know that's got it's got the long branches that maybe extend out a ways. Um, and then a lot of times nowadays, you're going to see that little pole-sized trees have come up and it killed the bottom branches. Well, that's an indicator that that place was way more open at one point in time in the past. So I'm looking for these places that, that most likely it has happened. You're not going to go down into a softwood river bottom and burn. You're, number one, it's not going to burn. Uh, it's not a fire adapted area, but number two, the, the effects of it, if you've got a fire going where there's trees that are going to be heavily affected by that, you're going to wipe a bunch of stuff out. And that's usually not the goal. So with prescribed fire in the timber, it comes down to a very fine science of prescriptions, uh, especially when we start talking about lumber value uh, and things like that, you, you have to, I mean, it's a, <laughs> you have to micromanage it, I should say. Well, that's leading me right into my next question is biggest reason why it scared me is at least on our properties, we've got basically two different types. You got a bottom, a bottom piece. that has got a bunch of walnut and then you got a, the top piece, which is full of white oaks. Um, right. And it almost looks like it used to look like almost a state park. And instead of doing the burning, we did a select cut to open up that canopy. Right. Um, so in those two areas, would you even recommend doing a, a, a timber burn? So the first thing when I'm, when I'm assessing a property for, you have to figure out whether it'll even burn in the first place. So you're looking at the fuels and the fuels, obviously most of the time, uh, especially in Illinois are hardwood litter. 
um, specifically hardwood litter because what is hardwood litter? So that that's primarily going to be your oak hickory uh, leaf litter, uh, and there, there's other species thrown in, but it's primarily the oaks and the hickories around here, and you can tell by looking at it. So with hardwood uh, litter, the leaves are going to be thicker. And they're going to kind of they're going to have some color to them. But what you'll notice most about them is that when they dry, they crumple. They don't. They don't dry flat, and that airspace is what makes them good fuel. With a softwood tree, they've developed a protection mechanism where the leaves drop and they almost glue themselves to the ground. So what, no what, what is what is a softwood? Uh, give me so, some some different trees. Uh, some examples would be uh, maple. Uh, so silver maple is a classic example. Red maple. Uh, Sugar maple. Uh, let's see. That, <laughs> there's other salt. So any of your creek bottom trees, your buckeyes, uh, those type of. I mean, there's a lot of softwoods out there, pal. Cottonwood okay. is one, but cottonwood is one where it'll actually burn. You know, that's a bad example, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, stuff you're gonna see in a river bottom as opposed to a ridge with oaks on it. So when you're saying a ridge with oaks on it, as we were talking about it can definitely have an impact on those oaks. I mean, those are your value, so, your value. That's your value timber. Um, is it, is it going to kill your white oaks? Is it going to kill if you did it in the bottoms, your walnuts? Um, is it, what's going to happen there? So that's all going to be dictated by your prescription. So if you have a bunch of Japanese silt grass in your bottoms, then they are very susceptible to being damaged by the fire because, you know, it's an invasive species, but it ups the temperature of the fire so much that it, it will kill the softwood where it's, it's allowing the fire to travel places it shouldn't be going. Gotcha. Um, whereas your hardwoods, the oaks are able to compartmentalize the wounds. What that means is basically if you get a burn wound on an oak tree, it's going to be able over over a couple of years. It's going to seal that wound off into its own spot. Whereas a softwood, that's an infection point. It's going to stay wide open, and it's probably going to become hollow. So I guess that's the different defense strategies of the trees at that ground level. Right on. So what is I guess backing up? What is the benefit of actually doing a burn in the timber then? Uh, so so what what a lot of pieces of timber around here have that they shouldn't in my opinion is a defined mid-story so a mid-story is a result of not 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 having fire or some type of disturbance come through there in the past so what you're trying to do is top kill the mid-story and put light on the soil I mean, so when, that, when you say mid story, are you talk? Are you referring to like, like you were talking about earlier, the, those smaller core trees? So those pole sized trees. Yeah. So it's not your great big ones, and it's not saplings or anything below waist height. These are those, you know, ten to twenty foot poles. Um, what you're trying to do with fire a lot of times is get rid of the mid story, and sometimes you can't get a good enough fire through there 
but all you're trying to do is top kill it and set it back. Um, it's basically like a TSI because at the same time, and these are going to be most of the time softwood species. That's just how succession works. When you have an overstory of trees, the ones that grow in the shade the best are going to be the ones coming up. Those are usually your low value trees as far as lumber goes, um, but they make great browse. So fire can, you're going through the woodland and you're lowering that whole mid-story canopy, now you're lowering it down to where the animals can actually utilize it. Uh, so you're saying this fire that, is eliminating those? It's not eliminating them because they're going to root sprout, just like we were talking about earlier. A lot of them, you're going you're gonna to kill the top of the tree off, but then you're going to get all these shoots the next year that come out right at the base of the tree you just killed, and those are prime browse. Right on. Also thickening your, your forest floor. Yes. So you're also going to see a lot of different plants uh, responding to that as well because you're putting light on the ground. So, and a lot of those are highly beneficial to pollinators and wildlife. And, you know, here, here's, here's the problem with what we're talking about. This, this isn't a one and done deal. This is a, you're working towards a goal over a period of years. Fire is great at maintaining uh, a woodland scenario, but it, we haven't been doing it for 75 years. So a lot of times you have to jumpstart it by going in there and doing a lot of TSI work, getting, getting the fuel to the point where it'll actually burn to where you can start your fire program. Right on. So I guess if you had a forester come out or you had it your your woods marked, um, would you would you recommend then doing a TSI or a select cut prior to a burn, or would you just walk into a wide open big oak ridge that um, you know let's say it did have some mid story? I guess w would it have a mid story really if you had a had big white oaks all over your ridge? Probably not. I'm guessing. So. That's that's the problem with a lot of the uh, logging the the logging plants today is they don't account for that if you don't tell them if you want to utilize prescribed fire they're going to have to bring the basal area of the timber down which the basal area is is simply a measure of how many square feet per acre do trees take up like the bases of trees so it's going to be a lot lower and so the, the other problem you run into with a logging operation or a TSI is the amount of slash. And you, you have to manage that. Fire is nature's housekeeper. You can use it to clean it all up, but it can get to the extreme amount. And this happens a lot out west where you, you just created the perfect storm to kill all of your timber. So you that's that's where it comes down into studying and evaluating your fuels and also your prescription on you know how many days has it been since it rained because i know my coarser fuels like like a, a log as big as your wrist is still going to be wet but the grass next to it's going to be dry you know so there's a lot of uh fine tuning to do right right so i guess if you uh we're going to do this timber burn you know the preparations into it let's say it is a um, it has been TSI'd or has been select cutted uh, or even logged. 
Um, those are, th- by the way, I think we should just, so everybody understands what that is. Uh, TSI is timber stand improvement. Can you elaborate what a TSI is real uh, in a brief sentence? Yeah, so the TSI is basically, uh, I'll take the landowner's objectives, and I'm going to go in and improve his timber by cutting down less valuable trees and opening up space. Right. And a select cut? Uh, so a select cut, <laughs> you know I don't like that term, Kyle, but <laughs> a select cut is basically where uh, a forester will go in and mark a certain amount of trees to come out of a property, uh, supposedly unbiased, and supposedly they don't high-grade the trees and take all the good ones and leave all the bad ones. So that's the ideal select cut. Right, and also when you're doing a select cut, though, too, I guess this goes in turn probably with your TSI, but, you know, if you got two nice trees growing next to each other, but one has, you know, something wrong with it, whether it's a knot or a curve, and the other one's straight as an arrow, and you take that lesser one out, it amplifies and and, uh, gives it uh, more power to grow and get better and bigger quicker. Is that right, the... The, the that's one. right that's been that's been documented time and time again with uh just looking at tree ring growth you can tell when certain areas were were thinned or had a tsi done just by looking at the tree ring right and i think a lot of people are afraid of doing that because i don't know about you but i see so many properties that uh the the two big things i see and one of the properties i'm on has this problem i'm, I'm i just got it last year so i'm slowly starting to work on it but is they want it to either look like a state park where there's no understory and it's just all wide open. And at least for habitat and everything of that nature, I don't feel that that's very good. That's not good. That's not beneficial. Right. Um, or you get the opposite where you just talk about mid-story. You get those little post trees, you know, in my case, a bunch of maples uh, scattered throughout the, the white oaks. And, um, you know, it's really creating a giant mid-story and, you know, it's it's robbing the nutrients from those good trees, but at the same time, it's not creating any browse or anything on the on the lower store either. Um, right. So I guess with that, and I know we're kind of jumping here, but um, going back to the burn, um, and we were talking about flash, you know, so say we did a TSI or a select cut or a uh, someone logged it and you want to do a burn. Um, you were talking about, I'm sure you're talking about flashes would be, you know, those down tops of those trees. You know, that's going to create a lot of heat when that catches fire and keeps on fire for a long time. Um, what what do you do leading into one of those fires? Do you make burn breaks literally around those tops or, or what do you do in preparation for that burn? So preparation for uh, a woodland burn uh, is actually... That's exactly right. So it's actually fairly easy uh, to make burn breaks because your fuel is mobile on the ground. So you you can take a rake or a leaf blower and just blow a, a six or seven foot wide path because you got to understand the flame intensity. If you're used to a grassland burn, uh, a timber burn is really boring because it's just <laughs> the flames never get over knee height, you know, a lot of times. Right, and uh, probably slower too. I'm guessing. Yeah, they, they do. They do move slow, which is we were actually counting on the wind to push, to push the flames through the timber. But as far as what I do when I'm evaluating, say, 
uh, a few days before we're going to burn is we're going to go ahead and make our break. A lot of times, you know, we're checking them that morning, but we're making our break. And then we, we do a lot to preserve snag trees. So uh, anything that's got cavities in it, uh, we'll actually just take our same, the same leaf blower uh, or rake and just rake the fuel back about four feet from that tree. And what that's going to save you from is chimney trees, as they call them. They, there's a convection effect, and they just look like torches out there shooting embers out the top. And generally, the neighbors don't like that from what I've seen. Right. Um, so we, we try to save a lot of those. So that's, that's some of the fine-tuning I was talking about with your prep work. You can save yourself major headaches if you just make sure you've got all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. You know, another, another fuel I look for that's a hazard is ladder fuels. Like if you have a bunch of grapevines growing up together that, you know, have a, maybe they have a treetop hanging in them, that can actually get your fire up into the canopy. And that's more of a worry in pine forest, but you still have to be leery of it. Sure, sure. So moral of the story with the timber fire, you need to, well, who do they need to contact, Jacob, to to possibly get a plan for a, for a fire so, in the timber? It, it would be the same same type of scenario. All of those same agencies, NRCS, uh, Pheasants Forever. Uh, and then I know in Southern Illinois, the Prescribed Burn Association down there is absolutely wonderful. And uh, that's landowners helping landowners get these burns done. Um, so it's going to be the same with that. And But I think with somewhere uh, – like a prescribed burn association, those other landowners that are close to you are going to be able to kind of help you fine tune your plan based on what they've seen. So uh, you really do need, you need a professional to, to, to look through, to look through your uh, timber and, and get you a solid plan because otherwise, like you like we were talking about earlier, you can damage your timber value if, if you do it wrong. Right. Yeah, that's what you definitely don't want to do. So I guess, but, and I guess, I guess too, you know, if you get a plan to do your timber and you're, you know, going to do this burn and you do perform this burn, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I wouldn't do a one shoe fits all for, you know, if you got another piece of that property that does not look the same, you probably need to get a plan set for that as well, and not uh, a one shoe fits all and think you're invisible because. Next thing you're invincible. I mean, next thing you know, you you know you're ruining your timber. Um, so I'd say probably every single parcel that you're going to do get professional help every time. Absolutely, and and I'm a big fan of kind of micromanaging. You know, a some uh, a hill slope that faces to the south is going to be a totally different animal to burn than one that faces to the east. You know, there's these little intricacies on how the sun dries out the fuel uh, and what kind of conditions uh, topography create, things like that. You really do need a plan. Absolutely. Right on. Well, we're here in February almost here, and uh, I guess whenever you, uh, you're talking about those southern-facing slopes, you know, does that also play into a role of why a lot of deer like to bed on those south-facing slopes? and uh, shed yeah. a lot of their antlers there? <laughs> I, you know, I, w- I would absolutely assume so. 
And, you know, historically, a lot of our limestone glades and a lot of the savannas were all on south-facing hillsides just because of the thin soil, but they had that vegetation structure. You know, a lot of times there'll be maybe some cedars intertwined in there, and then, you know, they've got native grass here, and it's kind of the perfect deer bedding scenario, especially if you're working with fire and encouraging those species. Right on. Right on. Well, I can say I've officially learned a lot just from this podcast, so <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, definitely, um, I, like I said, I, I've done, we've done some select cuts and some TSI, and um, which that is a whole nother ball game too, I'm sure you're aware, especially uh, the whole hinge cut frenzy. Yeah, uh, yeah, I on. think. Uh, and I, and I want to touch on that real quick because, you know, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I guess I'm crazy. I'm not a forester, in case you don't know. I don't have a degree in any of this. I just watch the deer and I see what what I do and what works and what doesn't. And I've noticed, like, with with hinge cutting, I mean, your tree is still alive and you're creating vegetation there, but you're not – you're really not opening up that forest floor. So, with the maples – and correct me if I'm wrong or if you've got a different viewpoint on that, but I just feel like it would be better to to kill that tree off – and to open up that forest floor and let the new vegetation come up from that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, a a benefit that I hear guys talking about is that, oh, well, you're putting brows on the ground right then. And that's true. I mean, you are putting brows on the ground right then. But you're also, just like you were saying, you're, you're, number one, you're making a mess. Yes, and number two, you're eliminating an area where and, other and you know stuff I think I think that's a lot of it too, Jacob. Right there, you just said it. Is I think it's a visual for a lot of people because they see that they're hinge cutting and they hinge cut all these trees together. They all intertwine them and everything, and it just looks thick and nasty. And they're like, "Oh man, this is going to be the best bedding area and create so much vegetation for the deer." Whereas if you just cut the tree down, it lays, and it's like, "Well, that's still pretty open," you know. But it's because they. In my opinion, it's almost like a a, a short term um, viewpoint on it. Like what it's actually going to do in a long term effect by keeping those out is going to be far superior in my eyes than doing those hinge cuts. Because if you do a hinge cut right, that tree is still alive, and that tree is still robbing nutrients from your good trees, your white oaks, etc. Whereas if it's dead, it's not. Um, so, a- am I right in thinking that? Oh yeah, yeah, you're you're right, and and you know uh, you're right. It's about instant gratification. Whereas, so if you took that same maple tree, and maples usually don't hinge very well. This might be a bad example, mm-hmm. but just whack it off, flush cut it, uh, or you know six inches from the ground. And if you want the cover, don't treat the stump. That's it's gonna feed the deer. You still have your tops of your tree and everything on the ground, which I prefer to buck them up myself. I, I, I cut them up and I try to minimize the mess because I'm also, I'm, I'm leaving them standing as well. I'm doing a little bit of hack and squirt or girdling to where, you know, some of that mess is just going to stay standing for a while. So I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Because girdling, usually, girdling scares me though. I mean, Go in there on a yeah. rainy day. You better be uh, walking in there with a puckered butthole and watching those <laughs> trees really close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's right. And and you know, girdling 
I don't know. I, I find it just as easy to hack and squirt. If I'm going to girdle, it's and probably And what is a hack and squirt, Jacob? Can you, can you explain so, what a hack and squirt is? You literally, what I do is just walk through the woods. Um, you have a game plan set. So you got a certain size diameter tree you're going after, a certain species. And you just get a hatchet. And I like the little, uh, I call them grenade sprayers, but they're like a three-quart little sprayer that's got a pump top on it and it's got a handle you can hook on your back pocket which i find super handy but you just go through and you're just making a few hacks i don't remember the general rule is like uh one hack per every two inches in diameter but you just kind of work your way around the tree and how high up are you going does it matter so chest height is fine um wherever it's comfortable for you okay and you're just kind of hacking uh, grooves in the tree you know just figure your first hit with an axe on a downward angle and then in that split you create you're just squirting in a little bit of I just use 50% uh, generic glyphosate mixed with I like to use windshield washer fluid because it doesn't freeze so interesting but and then blue dye I always put dye in mine just because it makes it so much easier to see where you've been but that's a great way to, and you can move so quick. I mean, you can imagine just carrying around a hatchet and a little spray bottle with you. Yeah. You can get a lot of stems done in that, a short amount of time, and you're not making the mess. Yeah, and I guess, I guess too, you know, it's kind of heck if you heck if you do it this way, heck if you do it this way, because I mean, if you do the hack and squirt and you do or the girdling, you know, yeah, it's still standing. It could be dangerous, but then again, if you go in there and you cut them and you squirt them, or if you cut them and don't squirt them, you know, that's dangerous in itself by cutting the trees and how they fall and everything. And and you got the mess on the ground, and you can intertwine trees when they tr- when they go to fall. Um, so it's kind of he- one way is the other, but definitely the quicker way was what you just said, you know, the hack and squirt or doing the girdling. Absolutely. And so if you have uh, a certain, you know, you can kind of tailor it to how you want to do it to where you can use all three of these tools on the same track as timber to where maybe the last thing you do is go through and you hinge cut a few trees after you've already done a hack and squirt treatment and a basil bar treatment or, or whatever, you know? So, right. uh, and, and I, I want to, I want to retract part of my statement is on the hinge cutting. Not all hinge cutting is bad in, in, in my eyes. I mean, if you hinge cut some, groups of trees i'm just talking about going through and doing a whole timber of hinge cut i just think that's crazy to me um but i definitely feel like there are places that it would be beneficial um like you just said using all three methods that's that's perfect you need to use it strategically and with hinge cutting especially i i try to minimize it you know i'll use it where it's needed but i'm not going to overuse it right 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 on. Well, I think we covered that. Um, that uh, That's what was interesting because, you know, bottom line is what we're talking about here is we're trying to we're trying to get maximum value out of the land, keep the land valuable, you know, have those valuable logs on there. And because future generations are going to take the land and, and so forth, we want to make sure it's the best of the best for them. And at the same time, though, beneficial to the wildlife. Um, that's, you know, top priority as well. And I, like you said, there, there's a lot of different plans for different different pieces of land. It's all what you're really after. And I guess in my eyes, I'm looking at doing those two different things, what I just mentioned. 
you know, having a valuable stand of timber and uh, also benefiting the wildlife in that aspect. And um, back, um, I want to back way up, and I don't mean to keep going here too long. I promise this is it. But um, on the grasses, I want to talk about, we were talking about doing the burning. Um, a huge thing that is going on, if you didn't know, on the last farm bill, not this, pre, not this one, but the one before, they, uh, they were paying out pretty hot and heavy on pollinator programs uh, for the CRP signups, which is a huge thing because if you haven't done any research or cared much looking into pollinators, um, we are down over half. We are down 50% or more. I would say it's probably more than that now on our pollinators, and it is crazy. If people don't know what pollinators are and what they do, we're referring to like your butterflies, your bees, and they're thriving on those forms. And like with my CRP contracts, a lot of them are pollinators. Um, there's a lot of forbs in those mixes. And with the burn, you are encouraging your grasses and not so much your forbs. Is, am I correct in that? Uh, no, you're not. Actually. I'm not. Okay. Um, That's what I was but, told. So that was a lie. <laughs> so so well, burning actually it's, it's does encourage your point. forbs too? Well, it, it's true to a point. So that's based on your prescription. A good burn manager knows that if you want to encourage forbs and discourage grasses, you can do it with fall fire. So you're burning that okay. residue off instead in of the burning. Fall. Instead of burning here right before spring, you're burning in that's the fall. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's yes. right. Yes. And and so say the, why what, we're doing the, that. The the reason being that the freeze thaw action is a lot harder on like a sod forming grass where it's going to kind of tear the roots apart and break stuff up because all that cover that it was protected by is gone. So that opens up a lot of holes in the sod for your forbs. Um, but a spring fire also encourages forbs. Uh, generally you're going to see vigorous growth uh, from your native forbs, and you're going to see higher flower counts and higher seed production uh, during a burn year. Okay, gotcha. And and to be clear, your 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 warm season grasses and your forbs will be laying dormant uh, when you burn in the in the uh, you know February March era, as well as what is it like late October? They're they're normally dormant as well, right? Right, and and you're really killing those cool season grasses, which you're you're trying to eliminate out of your out of your grass program. Yeah, so yeah, to make this clear, what we've been talking about the whole time is dormant season fires. Uh, growing season fires are a totally different topic for a totally different podcast. Sure, sure, <laughs> yep. Because I do know you do some of that. I personally don't do that, but. Uh, yeah, I'll be intrigued to hear about that and why it's beneficial as well. But huge thing I want to make a statement on is is our pollinators. I mean, you can relay on this too. I, I went to a whole uh, day class on it, and uh, I was absolutely astounded. I didn't know. You know, I, I've been managing for deer and, and pheasant and quail, but never really paid attention to the pollinators. And they basically showed what it looked like having pollinators and having no pollinators at a grocery store. And let me just say, it is mind-blowing. And to see how bad our pollinators are and the shape they're in, um, that is really scary to me, I mean, for our future. Yeah, and, and I mean, bugs are the bottom of the food chain. I mean, 
you, it has to start somewhere. And, you know, what we can do is provide plants that make bugs thrive. And that's what I try to do here on our farm. Uh, it's about 50 acres, but I'm managing for upland birds. And we've had tremendous success after planting the pollinator and especially its brooding habitat, I think, is what at almost every hen is pulling their chicks through because they got these high protein insects to eat. You know, you we're seeing it on the small scale, but you know, there there's drastic declines in grassland birds right now. And the reason is a big reason is because of the habitat and the lack of bug life. So we can do everything every I'm gonna do everything I can to try to help it out from where I'm at, you know. Sure. And I guess another thing, you brought this up before, and I have noticed this, and it's something uh, when I first started doing all this, I I really wanted, I guess it was the it was the look. Um, you know, I looked at the all these native grasses, and I'm like, man, you know, I want mine to look like that, all thick and full and to the max grass, you know, every square inch it looked like. But having spots in your native grass or your CRP where, you know, it might be bare or you – do mow some pass whatever or have some spots is actually a good thing. And can you tell me your theory on why you think that's a good thing um, for, yeah. for the wildlife? So uh, it's, it's the, the basics and the word that I just love to use is diversity, but it's habitat heterogeneity is what I would call it. That's, so that's like having habitat that's different in a small scale even. So you could have tall grasses here, tall plant structure, maybe some woodies over there, and then you got some short dips. Well, those are those are important for a variety of species that you may not even know use your property. Uh, a lot of the grass and birds and stuff like that, but you're encouraging a broad amount of plants that thrive in different habitats, I guess. That'd be the kind of the basis of it. Right on. And I know they were saying, too, you know, for the quail chicks and stuff like that, making it easier for them to run through um, when, they're, when they are chicks. I, I don't know if that's their getaway or whatever, but that was part of the class, too, um, talking about, you know, the, the it showed actual trail. They set up trail cameras inside of the, the grasses, and they showed, you know, the super thick grasses where they just could not maneuver, man. And, right. the, you know, the, the thinner spots is where they were at. You know, they go from the thicker to the into the thinner, and and run around do their thing. Um, but I found that really interesting. So I guess yep, that's a, and that's I, exactly right. Sometimes it doesn't. Wildlife don't need what looks pretty to you. You know, <laughs> it's what works for them. Right, right. And testing, experimenting, and and I know you do a lot of that. I love it um, because I, you know, we are all stewards of the land and, and trying to learn this and in conservation. Is that as at least at my forefront, and I know yours, and in, in the habitat management, and um, like I said, I didn't go to school for this, and I try to learn as I go along the way, and uh, always keep an open mind. You know, uh, something that you might not have done might actually work and benefit your wildlife on your piece of property. Um, but uh, this has been an awesome podcast, man. I've I've honestly learned a lot, and some things I thought I knew I didn't, and uh, I love that been talking here for an hour and 10 minutes and first podcast i'm gonna call it a quit i think we are done um i appreciate it jacob you got anything else you want to relate to everybody uh well i'll throw it out 
for a fire episode, I can't go the whole time without talking about Native Americans. So sure. just remember that, I mean, this fire is nothing new. When the settlers arrived here, this place, the United States of America was an amazing place. It was the Garden of Eden. And we didn't, I don't think as white settlers, we kind of didn't take enough from the Native Americans that they had this place in tip-top shape. Uh, Are you saying we didn't take enough from the Native Americans? Did I just hear you say that? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's, that's a really bad, (laughs) bad idea. So, I know exactly what you're talking about, though. Yeah. I just had to. <laughs> that was we didn't. You, we didn't learn from what the Native Americans were doing, and sure. and uh, they they were managing the land with fire. You know they they were they weren't managing to drive game. They were managing to make the land more productive. You know some of the, some of the early settler accounts were like our horses' hooves were red with strawberries. You know, like I just incredible stuff. So. All we're trying to do is emulate what was going on 200 years ago because that's what these ecosystems are adapted for. So when you put fire on the ground, think about that. Right on. Well, Jacob Pruitt, hey, man, I appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed this podcast, and I hope uh, hopefully a lot of other people will enjoy it, and especially guys that are wanting to get involved in doing it. And, uh, you know, if they, I know there's a lot of people that's got CRP contracts and uh, mid management practices is one of them is burning. And I know in this past farm bill, they took it out where, um, you, you do not get reimbursed for doing it. Um, however, I feel like it is the best method. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, in my opinion, I, I prefer it over spraying lightly disking and all that. I, I mean, I just seen so much different. I, I guess I've seen it really benefit the wildlife a lot more and the other thing i do i want to mention real quick on ours is we never burn at all so you're on a you're on a rotation and as you said you don't you as you said you know burn half or a third and the reason for that is so you leave some cover for the wildlife as that grows um but do you feel burning is the best best mid-management practice for for those grasses absolutely is a very powerful tool and it is super cost effective uh i mean you're not going to find per acre a cheaper treatment that is as effective as it is so yeah i believe in fire i believe it can uh it can do great things right on well hey guys hopefully you guys enjoyed the team radical first podcast here and jacob pruitt thanks again man for hopping on here looking forward to getting this one up and make sure you guys share and subscribe to our podcast. It's so weird saying podcast, isn't it? Instead of web show. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. Yeah, yeah. So really enjoyed it, man. And you have a good night and, and have a great weekend. And we'll see you guys right here on the next podcast, the Team Radical Podcast.